Hello, this is Jay Barris of Sidley Austin with the Mutual Fund Minute. In this episode, we'll look at the role of mutual fund directors 60 years ago and today. History can be an important guide to understanding the present. Case in point, today's robust fund board culture owes much of what is now a mostly forgotten 60-year-old academic study authorized by an obscure statute. Let's take a nostalgic walk down the long and winding regulatory road to look at how fund directors became who they are today. Congress enacted the Investment Company Act of 1940 to address perceived abuses in the mutual fund industry, primarily resulting from overreaching by investment advisors and sponsors to the detriment of fund shareholders. At the time, the fund industry was tiny by today's standards. In 1941, there were some 141 registered mutual funds with assets of some $440 million. That's about $89 billion in today's dollars. By the end of 1961, just after the 20th anniversary of the 1940 Act and a critical historical junction, those numbers had grown to 344 mutual funds with assets of about $24.4 billion dollars and that's about $250 billion in today's money. Relatively speaking, mutual fund assets in 1961 were still tiny compared to modern-day asset levels. As of December 31, 2021, some 8,887 mutual funds had total net assets of $27 trillion, plus another $7.2 trillion in about 2,700 exchange-traded funds. But in 1961, the Securities and Exchange Commission considered this tremendous growth in the number and size of the mutual funds enough to implement its investigative and reporting authority under Section 14B of the 1940 Act. This easily overlooked provision of the 1940 Act authorized an SEC study to investigate several areas, including the rapid growth of funds, how that growth affects investment policy of funds, the securities markets, portfolio securities, and the concentration of control around wealth and industry. The Act also authorized the SEC to report its findings to Congress. What followed was a 595-page report, modestly called a study of mutual funds, and undertaken at the SEC's direction by the Wharton School of Finance and Commerce. A year later, upon its submission to Congress in 1962, it became known as the Wharton Report. In dry but explosive language, the Wharton Report concluded that the independent director requirements for mutual funds may be of restricted value as an instrument for providing effective representation of mutual fund shareholders and dealings between the fund and its advisor. How did the Wharton Report reach this conclusion? Well, one of the reasons was that it found the definition of an affiliated director too narrow and referred to accumulated evidence concerning the typical minor role of board of directors and independent directors in mutual fund affairs. The Wharton Report also criticized the levels of investment advisory fees and asserted that advisors often did not share economies of scale with fund shareholders. These findings led directly to important changes in the 1940 Act, which ultimately helped reshape boardroom practices 
in ways both big and small. Perhaps most significantly, these legal and regulatory mandates drew in more qualified fund directors who today exercise dramatically more robust and professional oversight of funds and their advisors. Let me briefly explain how this happened. The Wharton Report was followed by the SEC's 1963 Report of the Special Study of Securities Markets and another report, The Implications of Investment Company Growth. Collectively, these three reports emphasized the themes we've highlighted. Investment advisors were not sharing economies of scale associated with industry growth at levels that the authors of the studies expected, and fund directors could have been more effective in advocating the interests of shareholders. These findings led Congress to amend the 1940 Act in 1970 in three important ways. First, director independence. The 1940 Act's original standards allowed independent fund directors to own shares of the advisor's stock or be related to an advisor's executives. The 1970 amendments responded with clear limits on each of those kinds of affiliations. To be considered independent today, a fund director can no longer beneficially own even one share of the stock of a fund's advisor or principal underwriter, nor can the advisor be an immediate family member of an affiliated person of the advisor. Second, advisory agreement approval. To more fully engage the independent directors, Congress amended Section 15 to require fund directors to request and evaluate information as may reasonably be necessary to evaluate the terms of advisory contracts. It also added a requirement for advisors to provide this information to the directors. At the same time, Congress required that a majority of the independent directors annually approve the agreements at an in-person meeting called for that purpose. Thus, the Wharton Report became a straight line to both the adoption of Section 15C and the development of the Section 15C process, which is among the most important statutory responsibilities of fund directors. It also required the in-person annual review requirement. Third, fiduciary duty of advisors. Perhaps the most controversial change to the 1940 Act in 1970 was the addition of Section 36B, which deems investment advisors to have a fiduciary duty with respect to compensation that the fund pays to the advisor or its affiliates and provides for the enforcement of that fiduciary duty by both the SEC and private plaintiffs. Prior to 1970, the law gave the SEC the power to sue an advisor for gross misconduct or gross abuse of trust if it related to the compensation paid by the fund to the advisor. Even then, the statute limited the SEC to injunctive relief. That is, its only power was that it could enjoin the advisor from acting as such. Moreover, fund shareholders could sue only under state law and then only under a theory of corporate waste, which was a pretty high bar. The 1970 amendments created a private right of action under Section 36B, giving rise to today's excessive fee cases. In 1982, a dozen years later, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals decided the Gartenberg versus Merrill Lynch asset management case. This seminal case established the so-called Gartenberg benchmark, 
which is used to determine whether an advisor has breached its fiduciary duty under Section 36B with respect to the receipt of fees. For an advisor to violate its Section 36B duty, the fee must be so disproportionately large that it bears no reasonable relationship to the services rendered and could not have been the product of arm's length bargaining. Now, let's fast forward to the present day. For more than half a century, funds and their shareholders have benefited from enhanced protections of the 1940 Act, including tighter director independent standards and specific process requirements for the annual review and approval of advisory agreements. Meanwhile, fund advisors have endured decades of private litigation alleging that funds paid them excessive fees. During the 40-plus years since the Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision, the litigation has proceeded under the Gartenberg Standard, which the U.S. Supreme Court made the law of the land when it decided the seminal Jones v. Harris case. In the 60 years that followed the Wharton Report, Fund boardroom culture has evolved dramatically. Fund directors have become more educated, informed, and inquisitive. They are better advised and supported by independent legal counsel, and yes, they are more independent in both name and fact. This evolution is attributable, at least in part, to the collective impact of the Wharton Report, the SEC reports that quickly followed, the 1970 amendments, and the enduring shifts in the broader corporate governance landscape. The bottom line, the 1940 Act and today's robust boardroom culture owe much to what is now a mostly forgotten academic study undertaken 60 years ago pursuant to an obscure provision in the statute. Indeed, a reminder that history is always an important guide to understanding the present. This is Jay Barris with the Mutual Fund Minute.